Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masech Psachim, daf Kuf Yud Dalid, page 114. Well, we're in the final stretch. We're going to be making our Siem God willing in a week. We hope that you've all registered and will be joining us. We have some great Torah lined up, and it's not too late to volunteer to want to share some Torah also. And really now is where we're going to get into the meaty part of Masech Psachim that really has to do with our Seder. Um, and we're going to start with the Mishnah that appears on this step. Mazgulo Kost Rishon. So they pour for him the first cup. So Beit holds the opinion that first you would make a blessing on the day, right? And afterwards you would make a blessing on the wine, which would be Borei Priya Gefen. Beit reverses it and says, no, first the wine and then the yom. So now I want to really just do, it's really just a great Gemara and touches on a bunch of different things. Tanu Rabbanan. So uh, we we learned uh, in a, here it's a Tosef actually. So there's a, matters of disagreement with regard to a uh, meal between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai so Beit Shammai is always going to hold this opinion that we give the blessing of the day that we're giving, making Kiddush over first, and then we'll do the one for the wine. And why does Beit Shammai feel this way? Because the day causes the wine to come. In other words, you wouldn't be having wine at the table if it wasn't for the fact that the day, that in other words, there was this Kedusha of the day, that the day in itself was special. And furthermore, the day was already sanctified and the wine had not yet come. So really what Beit Shammai here is basically expressing is that there's a holiness, there's a sort of the day piece comes first and the wine is secondary. And therefore, that's why we're going to make the bimekadesh or say kiddish on the day first, and then we'll acknowledge the wine afterwards. Hillel is going to give a different reason for this. Ubed First, we'll give the blessing on the wine, and then we'll give the blessing on the day. Why? Because the wine, right, is what causes the Kiddush to be recited. In other words, you can't say Kiddush without having the wine, or we can make Kiddush also over bread. But in other words, the wine is what is needed to do the ritual of Kiddush. And if you didn't have the wine there, you wouldn't be able to do it. Davar uh, right? Here's another, uh, you know, another idea that Beit Hillel gives. And this is really a very interesting halachic concept that we see quoted in many other places, that the blessing of the wine is said more frequently, right? Like more often, it's more commonplace to have to make a blessing over wine, right? Wine was really drunk every day at this time. It's still drunk every day for, by some people. But the blessing over the day is not said as frequently. And therefore, they now they invoke that halacha principle. Tadir v'sheno, tadir, tadir kodam. If you have two things to do that are equal, right? In the sense of two things that need to occur simultaneously, something that's more frequent and the other thing is less frequent, you do the frequent one first. The halacha kedivrei beit hillel. And the halacha is like beit hillel. Now here's where it gets interesting. My davar acher. So first the Gemara wants to know, why do we even need to offer this davar acher of tadir v'sheinot tadir tadir kodem, right? Wasn't the first answer that Beit Hillel gave, right? That in other words, you can't have Kiddush without the wine. Isn't that enough? 
So if you want to say there, you know, maybe it's to do parallel, right? Beit Shammai gives two reasons, okay? And uh, Beit Hillel is, Beit Hillel is also going to give. Hakanami tarte minho, right? So that's why Beit Hillel is also going to give two reasons and ends with the second reason of Tadzir Vreshino Tadzir Tadzir Kodem. But now they're going to get into a different point here. Bahalacha Kadibre Beit Hillel. So it says the halachas like Beit Hillel. Pshita, Dahan Nefak Bakol. So it says Pshita, we know this already because we know about the Bakol. Now, what Bakol are we referring to? If we remember, this is a Gemara that we learned in a Reuven together on Dapir Gimel, right? Where it talked about that Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai used to have a machlokas with each other. And that Bakol came out and said, we always paskin like, uh, like Beit, Beit Hillel, right? And the reason for it is because Beit Hillel always taught the side of Beit Shammai, uh, Beit Shammai first, right? Um, and Ibayema, right? And if you want, you could also say Kodem Bakol. So we'll say maybe this Tosepta was actually taught before the Bakol happened. This to me is interesting that we always think of these to- Mishnahs, Brysas, Toseptas, all this ton of Itic literature is sort of existing in this vacuum. And here the Gemara is basically saying, no, there's chronology to that. It's really possible that some of these were written before other events occurred, and it may actually have impacted how that particular piece of Tanaitic literature was written. And so here, one of the suggestions they're giving is, is that that Tosefta was recorded before the Batkol. Once the Batkol came, we never would have to write Hilchatak to Beit Hillel, because everybody knows the Halachas are always like Beit Hillel. But if you wrote something down before that time period, you would have to acknowledge that what the Halacha would be, because there actually was a question about it. And then the Gemara goes on to say, Right. If you want, you could say la'achar bakol. No, you could say no. This tosefta also could have been written after the bakol. But Rabbi Yeshua he to Amar ain mashkichim bebakol because Rabbi Yeshua holds we don't rely on the bakol. Now I want us to remember this line because when we get to the famous Gemara, which I think I mentioned so many times about the Tanor Shalaknai and the famous line where Rabbi Yeshua is going to say lo, you know, lo bashamayim he that that the uh, again, there, it's going to be another example where a bat call comes out and Rabbi Yeshua very famously says, we don't listen to a bat call because things have to be paskin by humans um, in the human experience and we don't rely on a bat call. So for Rabbi Yeshua, we don't care that there ever was a bat call, right? And he's consistent throughout uh, because we really, we, we have to sort of declare, humans have to declare what that halacha is going to be. So this is a sort of a very easy piece of Gemara to read. Um, I just think it has so many layers on it. First of all, it shows us a very interesting machlokas over the order of Kiddush itself. And I think we can see why Beit Shammai's side has merit and why Beit Hillel's side has merit. Um, I think it gives us some insight into the machlokas, uh, uh, you know, um, of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai um, and how that was often Paskins, and the fact that the Gemara sort of acknowledges that we could have that some Toseptas or Bryces or Mishnas, like there's a chronology to them. They were actually written at a particular time, and that may affect the wording of the particular Tanitic literature that we're studying. And finally, the idea that a Bakhol really can't give us a Pesach Halacha, right? That Rabbi Yeshua really refers Emash Tichin Bivatkol. We don't, we, we disregard the Batkol. We don't rely on a Batkol in any way. We as humans have to be the people responsible for actually establishing what the Halacha is. And we don't rely on something uh, from heaven itself because it's going to be, Halacha is always going to be brought forward 
by the people actually practicing it. There's no divine intervention when it comes to halacha itself. So again, kind of you, I'm sure those of you who already read the daf and are listening to us afterwards, you probably went through this part very quickly, but it's such a layered piece of Gemara until we get to the second Mishnah here. So I thank you for unpacking that. I just want to take a step back and, you know, just think for a moment about what happens with Kiddush. Like think about Kiddush Friday night. And I know that, I think that it's a puzzling thing for many children. Uh, I include myself in this, you know, back in the day where you have Borei Pregafen and then there's more words until you get to drink your wine or grape juice as the case may be, right? Because that's exactly the Pesach of Beit Hillel, that there's the first opening verses and then you get the Bori Pregafen bracha, and then you have more discussion about the sanctity of Shabbat, and the and Kiddush closes with, you know, blessing the day of Shabbat as opposed to the blessing on the wine. Now, if you also have learned Birkat Ananin, which we of course spoke about in Masachah Brachot, and you think that you should have a bracha on the beverage that you're about to consume as close as possible in as great proximity, you know, time-wise to the actual drinking then Beit Hill's position is also very difficult, which is not the issue that Beit Shammai raises here, right? But, but I, I th- and I think that, I think that, you know, the Tanaim resolve this. They don't have to focus on that question. I'm just saying that experientially, as a child, it's always very, I don't know, I found it disconcerting. You know, why is there this big gap between when you say your Borei Pregafen and when you actually have your Borei Pregafen? Um so there, but there you see it like manifest in the practice exactly this machloket and its resolution. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because you it's you know you sh- sort of should say that bracha and almost sip the wine and then you'll go ahead and say the kedushah hayom. <laughs> so it is, but when you see this gemara, it makes a lot of sense why we do practice that way. I mean, Hillel's Beit Hillel's reasoning, you know, makes logical sense. But I'll also say Beit Shammai's does too. Right, which is why it's good that we have a decision made for us, you know, otherwise we would be arguing it out still to this day. Okay. I'm going to continue now with the next Mishnah. Um, if you look this, right. So the, this section of the parak of Sachem is basically following through the order, literally the order of the Seder, right? Seder means order. And so after that first coast, the first coast is Kiddush. Thank you, Yordina. Right now we're going to end up with basically with Karpas. If you look and now we're going into the whole, the rest of the mitzvot of the, of the seder and even to the meal. So what's going on here? So the first thing that's brought out is the vegetables that are brought right to the leader of the seder. And they're going to, it's all happening before the meal. And this is, you know, there's no other vegetables on the table at this time. And it'll take, it'll dip, and says he dips the chazeret into water or vinegar. And this is going to be the initial thing that he eats. And then they bring matzah and chazeret. Again, chazeret literally translates to be horseradish. Um, but in this case, it really is what we would call maror, meaning it's bitter herbs and there's any different kind. The Shulchan Aruch, let's say, lists five different kinds of quote-unquote bitter herbs that can fulfill the mitzvah. And then charoset and then two kinds of uh, cooked dishes in honor of the festival, right? In honor of the holiday itself. So the Mishnah here then has this kind of internal debate 
uh, is Chorosid a mitzvah or not? And according to the first opinion, Chorosid is not a mitzvah until Rabbi Tzadok says, yeah, it is a mitzvah to eat the Chorosid because when the Beit HaMikdash was standing, they would eat the Korban Pesach together with the Marur and the Chorosid together, add your matzah in there. If you think about soft matzah, which is probably what they had, right? You've got much, something like a lafa, um, and, and there's your barbecue, there's your festive meal, right? It's a completely different experience, I think, than the way we do this today. Totally different um, than how we do it. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to see sort of, I think a lot of what this page does is show us kind of the development of how these things came about. And that even happens on the next step as well. Yes, yes. So I just want to see a little bit of this Gemara on this Mishnah. Now we're back with, you know, more sweeping general statements about mitzvot in general and the, the fulfillment of mitzvot. And we've seen this um, que- the debate, the question of whether mitzvot require intent or not. We've talked about it before, right? And Rish Lucky says, well, this Mishnah proves that in fact mitzvot do need intent, that you have to have uh, in mind, you have to have a plan that what you're doing is going to count as a mitzvah. Because the bracha that you would make on the food that counts as maror, the bracha of it is borei priadama, right? And then you can just have any borei priadama. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't put you into the into the gears of maror. Rather, there's a mitzvah bracha. Right, that says, you know, al maror. And that is now you have to have in mind, right, that what you're doing is fulfilling the mitzvah of maror. The achile, and if you didn't have in mind that what you were doing was fulfilling the mitzvah of maror, you have to go back and do it again in the name of maror. If you don't think that mitzvah require kavana, meaning if you think that you can do a mitzvah and fulfill a mitzvah without intent, then why would you need to have two dippings, right? He's already dipped once. Why wouldn't that have counted retroactively, so to speak, for the maror itself? And this is the tricky part of the relationship, I would say, between karpas and maror, because they're both fundamentally vegetables and they both they each are dipped and and but one counts as the mitzvah of maror and the other does not and what do you use for your mitzvah of for the phenomenon of karpas right for this section of the seder theoretically you can use the same thing as you would use for your maror because the real goal there is that it be a bore pradama bracha so for example if you grew up in my family you use potato if you grew up in many people's homes, lettuce, parsley. I know one family uses banana to make the point that banana is a bori predama um, bracha, right? But theoretically, you could use the same exact maru or herb that, or lettuce or whatever you're going to use for maru, you can use it for, um, you can use it for karpas. My grandfather, Allah Shalom, used to say that when he was a kid, this was in New York, but his family was following through on the traditions that they had from Russia, um, he, they gave you, a, he said, a, you know, a quarter of a chunk and he'd hold up a, his hand and show just how large this chunk of onion was and that you dip the onion into salt water. 
And as he would say, and then you really cried. The idea being, again, any bore predama, and I'm guessing that onions are simply an easier thing to store in the Russian, in the Russian shtetl, I guess. They were not wealthy people. Um, so the idea then is how, how do you distinguish between Maror and Karpas? And Rish Lakish's answer is with intent. The moment you plan that what you're doing is fulfilling the mitzvah of Maror, then, then you are. Well, I, what's great about this page is it really introduces sort of two classic, one is a classic halachic concept and one is sort of a classic halachic discussion, right? The piece that I did talked about tadir vishenot tadir tadir kodem. And here we have that discussion about mitzvot srichos kavana um, and how that interacts or w- what it means in terms of Pesach is, again, I'm going to use the word classic again, it's a real classic discussion, right? Like when you say you're eating matzah or you're eating maror, do you have to have kavana when you do that? Is it just enough just to say you ate it? Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the next step also. Um, what does eating actually mean? Um, but just these are concepts that you'll see throughout the Gemara and that get were referred to very often. We should note, of course, that the Gemara rejects Rish Lakish's contention. Right, because the claim is, and the conclusion consistently is, the mitzvot do not require kavana. So then, of course, then the question is, if they don't require intent, then why? What do you do about the fact that you have two dippings, and the first dipping didn't count for your mara? And the gemara jumps back to this reason that appears and reappears and reappears. That perhaps it should be a conspicuous distinction for the you know, quote, for the kids, you know, these same kids who are the children who are supposed to ask about every little difference of the of the seder. And again, I always ask if they've learned about it, then why would they be asking? Um, and but in this case, right, the idea is that there should be some real difference between you have a dipping at the beginning of the meal that does whatever it does, and then your murrah is going to be a little bit later in the meal. Um, and then of course. The Gemara itself goes now through goes through the different kinds of vegetables and the different amounts and so on. And I would say that of all the Gemaras that we're going to see about the Seder itself, I think this piece is perhaps the most challenging, at least for me. Oh, interesting. Why? Um, keeping track exactly like what is the purpose of Karpas, right? I feel like we ne- like there's always this question of distinguishing between the Karpas and the Maror. And I, you know, the, the rationale of Karpas is never quite as clear. Right. I think ultimately they land on it's there as just a ritual to sort of ask a question, but it's never sort of explicitly stated. And then I think we even see the murkiness of what Karpas does. Like you said, exactly in this discussion about what do you do if you only have Maror as your vegetable and you need to use it as karpas and as maror as well. And the one other thing I want to make sure to mention here is on the towards the end of Amudbet, we have, of course, what I think is a famous discussion here that introduces rice to the cedar. Um, as an Ashkenazi, uh, with Ashkenazi bin Hagim, where we do not have kidney, this was always quite startling to me. What are these two cooked foods that are mentioned in the Mishnah? Amrav Huna, Silka Aruza. There, there. It's a beet dish and rice. Rava have a mehader asilka vaaruza ahuil venafik mipumia de ravhuna, and Rava would go and look for the, the the beets and the rice for his meal because he he had this tradition from ravhuna, 
Um, meaning it doesn't, the, the question is, you know, the question here of like, does it have to be beets? Does it have to be rice? Or is this simply an example of what your cooked food might be? And the conclusion is that it's just an example of what your cooked food might be. But the point is that if you, uh, if, if one of the examples of what your cooked food might be for the Seder is in fact rice, then that means that the whole development of the question of kidney, which comes after the time of the Gemara, right? This is the proof positive of that, right? The whole question of rice at the Seder was completely a non-issue, it seems to be anyway, as far as Chazal are concerned. It's not quite a non-issue. There is some discussion of, but isn't rice a grain? Isn't rice like a grain? But at the end of the day, rice is, is mentioned here as a serious contender for your main dish or one of your two main cooked dishes at the, at the Seder. And if you're Ashkenazi and your practice is to not have kidney oats, you know, this is, again, quite startling because we do not have rice at the Seder. Again, obviously Sephardim do, and some people, some Ashkenazim do eat kidney oats. You know, and some Sephardim don't have rice, and everybody's got all different kinds of practices that have come down through the generations. But if you want to talk your Dana about the development of the practices of the Seder, I think this piece about the rice puts that in sharp relief for me because... It's so clearly different from what the concerns that developed over time in terms of what kidney oat were going to be and how to avoid, you know, whatever concerns there might have been of the appearance of grain or or stored with a grain or whatever it is that that changed the practice, really, from what we see here in the pages of the Gemara. Absolutely. And I, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, I guess we're going to we are going to get into the kidney oat discussion. But. It's very clear, you know, many people did eat rice. Yes, one person held rice was equal to bichamids, but it certainly was the rejected opinion and not how people held. And then we see later on that, you know, we won't get into a whole discussion of how kidneys happen, but it's really markedly different uh, than what happens in the times of the Gemara. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff and some of its questions that it raises about the development of our customs that we do over the Seder on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.